When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. How you feeling after that Super Bowl, my friend? Oh, man, it's like... Uh kind of gassed a little bit actually uh, i know <laughs> i think brock purdy stepped up did a great job and if it wasn't for a kicker missing an extra point uh, maybe he was paid off i don't know <laughs> I, yeah. I hate to say that but uh you know just that one extra point missed you know made the chiefs play a different game all they had to do is get a field goal to stay in it and that's what right. they did yeah. rather than have to go for the touchdown if they were forced to go for a touchdown because there was a four-point deficit that could have changed everything but Kelsey didn't do anything till that last game except uh, try to punch out his coach. I don't know. I think the organization needs to think, rethink that. I think he needs to be yeah. fine big time. Hey, Super Bowl is uh, behind us now. We've got March Madness to look forward to. NBA season still going on. And, of course, uh, in Arizona, up in Phoenix area, spring training has begun, so there's a lot to look forward to in sports. But as I've said many times in the program, we're not here to talk about sports. We're here to talk about finances and your journey towards a successful retirement. So, uh, Jeff, this past Tuesday, I understand the CPI results came in, and they were slightly different than what we expected. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, the, the Fed is really just a pawn. They were put into play, what is it, 1932 or the 30s, sometime right after the uh, Great Depression, I believe, in order to manipulate Wall Street and kind of be the right arm, right financial arm of the government so that they could manipulate and control stuff. And boy, this is about as good as it gets. We know that all that extra QE money eventually had to cause inflation. Every economist, everybody who'd been to business school knows that. But nobody wanted to believe it. And they just kept using it to pump up the market. And everything was hunky-dory. They loved it. The Fed's a hero because they kept interest rates down. I mean, stupidly low. And then all of a sudden, it came time to pay the piper. It came time to, uh, you know, the chickens came home to roost a little bit. And it's like, "Uh uh-oh, inflation's out of control. So what do you do? You raise interest rates. And as long as interest rates are going up, that's bad for tech. Decent for banks, other than the fact that the pandemic made people work at home. And so commercial real estate suffering really bad. And banks couldn't keep up with the high deposits and CDs and things like that. So we had a regional bank failure last year. And although the government did not lower rates at that particular time, in fact, they kept raising them. They did bail the banks out to the tune of, from what I'm hearing, and again, this is, uh, you know, I, I don't have the inside insight most people, smart people, billionaires that I listen to that are, uh, you know, economists and, that, and, and and hedge fund managers say it was to the tune of $4 trillion plus in QE money that went to banks, not to, you know, us. In fact, all the excess savings that they had piled up in business accounts and personal savings accounts that had kind of propped up the market for the last few years disappeared last September, yet somehow the market continues to go up. And then, of course, the manipulated Fed, the puppet of uh, Wall Street and the regime in the White House says, um, hey, you know what, let's just uh, give them some fake hope and say um, inflation is coming under control and uh, we're not going to raise interest rates anymore. Just just say that. And uh, let's get another push because the banks still have a lot of money they want to buy NVIDIA and Microsoft and some of these big tech companies with, which is what they've done, really just manipulated the uh, indexes up by six or seven stocks. 
But it's been really the market makers and the banks, by the way, own the brokerage, the big brokerage firms, you know, Merrill Lynch's Bank of America, Morgan Stanley's Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, got JP Morgan is Chase, right? JP Morgan. Uh, So they all basically are market makers. They are the banks. And somehow, even though they have record defaults on mortgages and have to buy up, uh, you know, CD interest at 5%, you know, they're using the Fed funds uh, money, even at 5% to invest in the stock market. You know, the the, the repo uh, account, which is typically supplies Fed funds money, I heard was down somewhere in the neighborhood of eight or nine hundred billion dollars instead of 2.4 2.5 trillion where it normally is so what are the banks doing with all this money i think they're trading their own stock they're doing their own stock buybacks they're trading in the market and they're, they're manipulating the market up and you know that's happening when um you know facebook comes in with earnings it gaps up 60 bucks or 20 percent in a day that stuff doesn't happen with normal buying that's not normal buying pressure where you get a whole bunch of buyers and oh my gosh uh, we should buy more and you see that orderly growth on that stock. You see NVIDIA jumping 20 bucks at a time up and down and all over the place. Wild, wild gap moves in the market, which are really market uh, maker driven, in other words, bank driven, in other words, manipulation. And I haven't seen this since the dot-com bust, which was kind of the first real experience I had with a bear market or with a sell-off or with a manipulated market that was manipulated to just horrific proportions. In fact, there's economists today that say that it's even worse than then. And I'm seeing the same things happen where it's just, there's a disconnect. It, it all happens because the Fed says, hey, inflation's under control. It's just going to immaculately drop. Just, you know, miraculously just happen to be 2% by next year. So we're not going to have any more rate increases. And the market goes up like crazy. And he even doubles down. And I'm sure he's got to be getting something for this. I mean, Wall Street's got to be buying him houses in you know, Tahiti or something. I don't know. The guy's got to be getting something for this. For a guy that makes less than $200,000 in a salary to be this big of a, a shill for Wall Street and, and, and even you know the, the political party that is now in control. I hope he's getting some for it because he's totally lying to the public. And that was a ball face lie. Now we've kind of been able to believe Powell for a while because he says, you know, hey, inflation is not under control. We need to um, raise interest rates. You know, it's still not under control. We're going to keep raising interest rates. That's always bad news. But the Wall Street keeps saying, no, no, no. He's really going to lower them. No, no, no. We've got earnings. Earnings are going to grow, so it's okay to overpay for stock. And he goes, well, we're going to raise interest rates. And so last year. Wall Street and the news talks everybody into buying stocks up 30% when there was, on average, for the S&P 500, less than 1% earnings. That doesn't make any sense, but it was bid up. And it's like, okay, so we're going to come into earnings season, you know, at the end of the year, and now we're doing it right now for the final quarter of last year. And we're finding some companies beat earnings, some companies didn't do so well. Overall, I think it's pretty lackluster results, but it's certainly not 30% earnings growth, which would reflect the uh, stock market uh, rebound. So then in December, Fed chair goes, hey, we're going to lower interest rates three times next year. And inflation's still at three plus percent or 4%. What? Oh, but it's going to come down. We don't want to overstep and overreach, which they normally do. And I, I, I get that. And honestly, I believed it because why? The last year, what he's been telling us, he's been doing. And then all of a sudden now, what he's telling us seems like, wait, that's unjustified. The rest of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, which are the the Fed shares for the different uh, districts in the country, are all saying, wait a minute, we never talked about reducing interest rates. We never talked about, you know, lowering the Fed rate. That's weird. Oh, well, we haven't had that discussion in the meeting, but, you know, Chairman Powell's a spokesman for our group and, uh, you know, that's what he says. Okay. And then you get the banks that come in and say, oh, he said we're lowering them three. We expect seven rate decreases. I don't know what happened. Mindless or brainless investors 
And I think a lot of them are young, you know, chief investment officers or banks that don't really know fundamentals. They never really learned that. Maybe they learned it in college, but they've never had to deal with it because it's all been based on QE and and the fake money game that uh, the government's learned to create since the 08 crash. And that is, hey, print money, the market goes up. Just keep printing money, the market goes up. Keep printing money, the market goes up. Well, you can get on that ride, but if you keep printing money and the market goes up and those companies are using that money and lower interest to actually increase earnings, that made sense. Even though I think overall, if you look at history, the last decade has been a little bit overvalued in the stock market, but the growth in the earnings was there. It hasn't been there. And now the Fed is lying to us saying, oh, inflation's under control. We're going to lower interest rates three times. And then the banks say, oh no, it's going to be five or six or seven. And all the people that go, okay, whatever, because they believe everything they hear. They just keep on playing the dangerous game until when? Until they get slaughtered. Every bubble has to pop. And this is the biggest bubble we've ever been in. Biggest bubble I've ever seen. If you look back in charts, you can see the bubble that burst in 2000 and 2002. You can see the bubble that burst in 2008. You can see this bubble growing and growing and growing. Every time it tries to pop, uh, they just inject a whole bunch of capital and it makes stocks go crazy again. So we can either get on that boat and say, well, the government's going to always save our butts. Let's just go in the market and uh, keep riding this train. Or we can see what's happening right now. And the fact is the last few you know, Fed meetings, well, the last one's at the end of the year, were BS. And he kind of took a step backwards uh, a couple weeks ago when he said, oh, well, we may not have to lower them quite so early. Don't expect one in March because, well, inflation's still kind of high. We're expecting it to come in, you know, kind of in the, the 2.9 range. Turns out now we've got this 3.1 year over year rate. It actually two tenths of a point higher than expected. And 2.9 is not a number that they feel comfortable with. They want it around two. The other thing is even worse, the core inflation, which uh, takes into account the things without gas and food, which I think is still a manipulated number. Obviously, you know, a carton of, of, uh, of ice cream, for example, is smaller, even though it costs the same. So I guess if you use the same carton price rather than the amount you get, the inflation isn't going up. And, you know, Biden was uh, pretty upset about that last week uh, during the Super Bowl. But anyway, we'll talk about that maybe a little <laughs> bit about Bidenomics not being shrinkonomics. He is the cause of all that. So the core inflation comes out 3.9. That's almost four. That's about double where they want it to be. How in the world can you have rate decreases when that's happened? Yet we've already priced in 30% growth in earnings. We haven't had that. We haven't had anybody have 30% growth in earnings, maybe five or 10. And that's from a lower revised number. We have the economic indicator, leading economic indicator index down for 20 straight months. We have um, inflation continuing to grow 4% a year on top of the 20 or 30% that we already have. Everybody's already paying 20, 30% more. Now you've got to pay 4% more than that. You know, if you look at 4% on top of, let's say 120% of what we were spending money on two years ago, that's really about a 4.8, almost a 5% rate of return because you've got to add the 4% to the 20% growth in uh, increases in prices that we've already experienced. So it's compounding inflation and nobody's taken that in consideration. It's got to get down around 2% in order to be close to that range that they need to for the economy to clip along to where the government doesn't have to keep on creating jobs to fake the numbers out. The government doesn't have to keep on creating GDP, 60% of the 3.3 they got last uh, GDP report, I, I believe was um, attributed to government spending. That That's not a healthy economy. And just the service on the debt's going to outpace that 3.3% growth. So there is a lot of things that are totally out of whack. Inflation's still out of control. The lies about decreasing the interest rates are lies. They're just flat out BS. They can't do it. And if they do do it, it's just uh, manipulation, quantitative easing, and it's injecting money into the economy, which is, I think, uh, financial abuse. It's it's um, malpractice in its biggest degree, which I think has been the case all along when the government prints money. It's pretty much financial malpractice. But they have the Fed on their side to give us a narrative or a story of why it's necessary or what's going to happen. Wall Street loves inflation. That's how they make money. The more things cost, the more profits, the more they make money. So they, they don't mind inflation. They don't mind all this extra money. 
But there's going to come a time when the bubble has to pop and it has to reset. And guess what? They're going to be the ones that made the most money along the way. And they're going to be the ones that get out first. They're going to keep making the money. And people that can't afford to lose money are the ones that are going to be left holding the bag. Now, again, I've said this in the past. I, I, I focus this you know, radio show and most of my practice on people that want to protect their assets and not take too much risk, want to protect their life's work, right? You've already done this, uh, you know, investing in the high crazy stocks. And if in the last decade you made a ton of money, take some of that off the table because pretty soon the banks are going to do the same. You want to be out first. You want to be out before them. So be careful going into this market. This is not just a, hey, the momentum's up. Let's just jump on the train. That train might be ready to hit a big brick wall if that bubble pops. And I think there's a lot of political reasons that I'm looking at that just point to the fact that there might be some catalyst to make that happen in the near future. The biggest thing is the inflation which I believe has been kind of a manipulated number and kind of reported as however they want to report, was reported high, which means it's probably higher than it is because I think they're kind of fudging the reports or twisting the numbers enough to make them make everybody happy and think everything's okay, especially in an, in an election year. So I think we're probably in a little bit worse shape than, than people thought, and this is not healthy for the market. So this might be the catalyst that ends in sell-off. I mean, earlier this week, it, it started. It's kind of been, you know, the market's so far up, I don't know how long the uh, it's going to take to have a big major sell-off. We're due for a correction anyway, just from the you know craziness and all the, the fibbing that's gone on since November. I think all those gains since November are really fake manipulated gains. There is nothing fundamentally that uh, makes a lot of sense other than Facebook and Amazon had a little bit better earnings than expected. But again, they finally got to where they were fairly valued and now they're way overvalued again. Not They weren't even fairly valued. They were just not so overvalued. Again, you can buy stocks that are overvalued and if everybody keeps buying them, that's fine. But there will come a time when people just are tired, they're out of gas, and they can't do it. And right now, we're seeing a lot more selling coming into the market than buying. Who knows? We might be at that uh, top range where we see an extended sell-off. We'll have to see what happens in the next uh, few weeks or few months. It's not uncommon that the first half of the year before an election, we have kind of a soft to a down market. And then once we know who the nominees are going to be and the election's coming around, we kind of want to wait, see what happens. And nobody really wants to make any judgment on the market. So there's not typically a huge sell-off around the, uh, the election time. There's typically kind of a leveling off or even an upswing in the market from what might have been down the first part of the year. And then going in after the election, typically we have a little bit more stability. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and also Mesa. We're talking about the current state of the economy and the uh, recent CPI report that came out earlier this week. If you like what Jeff is talking about here and you're impressed with his knowledge of the market and the economy, you want to see how he puts that to work for you in creating a retirement roadmap. We invite you to call this number to get your no cost, no obligation retirement roadmap, a chance for you to sit down with Jeff and ask your questions. That number to call 520-780-9059. Now you can call it this weekend if you want. You can call it right now. Simply leave your name, your telephone number. Shelly will give you a call back next business day. Take down some basic information and set you up with an appointment with Jeff to talk about your concerns about the market and the economy and your journey towards retirement. Once again, that telephone number 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation for this five-point retirement review that includes an income plan, investments to support the income plan, tax plan, health care plan, and also an estate plan. All that, and it doesn't cost you a dime. 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at premeret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, earlier you talked about the market looking similar to periods in the past in which the bubble has burst. David Rosenberg is uh, the president of Rosenberg Research, and he says that the stock market looks similar to periods that preceded the dot-com in 2000. 2008 market events. He goes on to say that the speculative mania carrying the stock market could end very soon. In other words, he's looking for that bubble to burst as well. 
Well, I mean, I'm not the only one who thinks that. I mean, there's uh, here's the thing, I've, and I've said this on the show for uh, months, and that is, yeah, I prefer to do the things the billionaires are doing, the people that have made money and are protecting, you know, huge amounts of money, and see the market on a very I guess, macro basis, not just, oh, look at the markets going up today. Let's jump on the train and let's hope we make a few bucks. I mean, that's kind of a day trading mentality, which by the way, is kind of how things have gotten in the last decade because of, you know, every time the market is infused with money from QE, you know, people just start speculating, oh, well, the momentum's up. I got a good chance. I can day trade and, you know, pick the right stocks and we'll do okay. And, you know, honestly, they've, they've done okay. There's people that manage funds, people like, uh, you know, John Bogle, who, you know, has died a few years ago, but, you know, was uh, important to listen to. Uh, Templeton, a long time ago before that, had Templeton funds. I mean, the people, these big fund managers, they're people that know stuff, right? Well, going back to uh, John Bogle, Jack Bogle, he's Vanguard owner, and right before he passed away, coming into the decade of the 2020s, he said, expect two crashes of at least 50% over the next decade. Shortly thereafter, um, Warren Buffett says, hey, you know, this is a bubble and it's going to pop. He says, I'm a buy and hold guy, but just expect the market to retract by about 50% not in the not too distant future. And then we had COVID and a whole bunch of money infused, and that kind of kicked that can down the road. But pretty soon, there's not going to be any more cans to kick. Let's go back to Buffett. You know, what has he done over the last year? He has liquidated over $200 billion worth of stock and has cash. Why would he have cash when the market's going to the moon? Why would he have cash when he could have made 10 or 20% just investing in the S&P 500 index? Because he knows those same banks that are rallying the stock market by buying, buying, buying and gapping the market up 60 bucks on Facebook or whatever it was. It was some stupid number with a gap. There's nobody bought between the close of yesterday to a new close of 60 bucks higher on the open. That means a market maker, the the powers that be just go, oh, let's just throw a number out and see how many suckers we can get jumping on that uh, game. Warren Buffett knows that those same banks can dump the market 20 bucks or 50 bucks or 70 bucks a share on a $400 stock the same way that they could raise it. Now, you know, we saw when the, the, the numbers came out, I think last Tuesday on the CPI that the market, you know, opened up down right away. I, I know the Dow, uh, you know, kept going down for quite a while. The, the NASDAQ opened up. Everything opened down, but it didn't really gap down that much. It gapped down, then it kept kind of trickling down. And then we've had, you know, the market that we've seen since then. But we've got, um, you know, weakness that can show up at any time with a CPI report. But there's still so many people that are ready to jump on that train because the momentum or the direction is still up that nobody believes it can go down. But when the market makers want it to go down, it's going to be a race to be the first one out. Anyway, uh, Lacey Hunt is Executive Vice President, Chief Economist of Hoisington Investment Management Company. But uh, Lacey Hunt is an economist that has some really important things that have been around a long time and says, are we clear? Do we see a soft landing? Do we see a, can we sidestep this? You know, what's going on? And uh, the interview goes around. I'm going to try to uh, find the, the final status of it. It says, based on dozens of measures that include valuations, internals, overextension syndromes, and numerous technical, fundamental, and cyclical gauges that we've developed over time, we estimate that current market conditions now cluster among the worst 0.1% instances in history. 0.1% instances. That's way beyond the uh, bell curve of probability line that ends, you know, somewhere in the 98% range. So, I mean, this is like 120th of the out of statistical probability. It's horrible. 0.1% instances in history, more similar to the major market peaks and dissimilar to major market lows than 99% of all post-war periods. He calls this the cluster of woe because the handful of similarly extreme circumstances, most notably, and look at these up on the charts, 1972, 1987, 98, which was just a slight correction, and then they got back on the train, kind of like we did uh, with a slight correction, I think, in 2022, which was a slight correction, kind of like 1998 was, before the market rallied to 2000 and then had the big crash. We've, we've just seen that. 
We had the same thing as in 1998 where we had a retracement of uh, stock prices and then people says, ah, forget it. We can still do this. And, you know, I think it was... um, Alan Greenspan at the time was uh, Fed chair, if I'm not mistaken, and talked about the over the over exuberant market. And he did some finagling with the interest rates, and then pretty soon the market just shrugged that off and went full bore ahead till 2000 before it crashed. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now is we're seeing you know this crash in 2022. Nobody wants to believe it. Uh, well, the market's being manipulated by a little bit of Fed money going to the bank so they can buy stocks and keep propping them up. We're seeing banks have profits, but we know they're not lending money, so it must be all trading. That's all I can surmise from all that. Then we had the 218. That was about a 25% uh, correction. We had 2020, which was 30%, but it came right back because they infused a ton of capital after COVID, the COVID scare. And then the 2022 was a bad year. So basically, this cluster of woe, because a handful of similarly extreme circumstances, are talking about these different corrections, were typically followed by abrupt market losses of 10 to 30% over six to 10 weeks. The average down was about 12.5%. I think because of how stretched this bubble is, we're probably going to err on the side of uh, you know, maybe the 30% type correction, which gets us kind of back below where we were you know, before the market started rebounding at the end of 2022. So the loss at the, at the smaller end of that range, seeing a deeper follow through later. So we might see a little correction, try to see a rebound and then deeper follow through. These are people that have seen these things over and over again. People have been in the market for decades, not just finally got rich the first time in their lives over the last decade, which I think most investors and most private um, households that own stock really have not made any money until recently because income has been high enough that they could uh, load up 401ks, they could uh, invest all the stimulus money in the market, they could do things that make them think that there is no end to the upside in the market. Yet these old timers, Warren Buffett, Lacey Hunt, Hussman, got John Malden, you got um, Malden Economics, you've got uh, Stan Druckenmiller, used to manage uh, George Soros's money saying, you know, he'd rather be short than long right now. Jeff Gunlag managed billions of dollars. He's more of a bond guy, but he's saying, hey, it justifies bonds right now. That's at least a safer way to protect your money in, in the market than to buy these overvalued stocks. The guy that called the big short uh, in 08 is saying, this is the worst bubble than we've been in back then. And I know it was going to fall. So all the people that actually know stuff are saying, be careful. I'm saying be careful. Let's be careful. Guess what? While we're being careful, we can make money in the market, in in the bond market or the short-term bond market. I mean, I'm okay making 5% while we're waiting for this all to shake out. I'm okay making you know high interest earnings in your uh, uh, money markets or even a, a bank CD making 5 or 6%. That's a no-loose proposition, whereas the market could be a big loose proposition. Meanwhile, we wait for our opportunity to buy. We don't lose money. We jump back in. The index products that I've talked about over and over again, the indexed annuities, even LERPs, if we get a surprise year like last year, even though it's manipulated, and we can make 10 or 15 or 10 or 12% in an index on the upside and something that's just, just as safe as a CD that can't go down if we're wrong, we still get the upside on those safe money products that we've had as long as they're market-based and have decent caps. And that's kind of hard to find now. And that's a whole nother story we can go into in another segment. But bottom line is the index products that we use are principal guaranteed and they still go up when the market's good. They don't lose money. We can still make money in those while we're waiting for the market to give us a better buying opportunity for our liquid money that's based in market and that's based on how much risk we can take. If you're young, who cares? But if you're listening to this radio show and you're ready to retire or already retired, you know, you want to protect the millions you worked a lifetime to, uh, to, to save or even if it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever it is, if you work a lifetime to secure that asset base so that you can live through your retirement, why would you risk it in an overvalued market or why would you be buying in? In fact, if you've made a ton of money in the last decade or made a ton of money even in the last year, 
why not take some of that profit off the table and be smart with it and put it in a safe place where it can't go down when the market crashes? And guess what? Market goes down, we buy back in. You can still uh, withdraw uh, money from those other accounts, dollar cost average back in the market when it gives us a better buying opportunity and uh, continue to grow your money even in retirement, but do it responsibly. So again, back to people thinking there's a crash. I'm not the only one. That's Jeff Hogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa. Once again, if you'd like to sit down with Jeff and talk about your individual situation and how all this applies to you, that number to call 520-780-9059 for your complimentary Premier Retirement Review. 520-780-9059. You're online at premret.com. Time for a break. Jeff will be right back with more of Premier Retirement and listener questions when our show continues here on 7 90 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shade. We're so glad you decided to join us this weekend for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. We're here for you each and every week for your fiscal fitness, your financial education. We're on Saturdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 1 p.m., and also on Sundays at 11 a.m. And if you can't join us those times, remember we're a podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so you can stay on top of your journey towards a confident retirement. Jeff, in this segment, as always, we answer listener questions. We got three of them this week. We'll kick it off with Don listening to us in Tucson. And Don writes, I have an inherited IRA from a 90-year-old sister who had begun distribution before her death. I don't need or want her distributions yet. Is there a more practical way I can currently avoid the distribution taxes on these funds without adding her distribution to mine until later? I'm 86 years old and currently taking my own RMDs. Well, apparently she took those distributions a long time ago. So this was pre-2000. There are some different rules that apply on the post-2000, you know, after they started changing the, the CARES Act and the SECURE Act and all the IRA rules. Even retroactively, the government is going to make you deplete that asset over the next 10 years. The, the current distributions, because they were already um, intact, now they've changed the ruling on this, and I'm not going to be a CPA or tell you this, but the last I've read is it seems like uh, the IRS is going to enforce both ends, ends of those rules. If your sister already, uh, even though she died pre-2000, you have to continue to take those distributions because the IRS expected to get those uh, those funds. The other thing is, is it will not deplete in 10 years. So if you have to deplete it within the next 10 years due to the new rules, then you have to kind of figure out how that's going to hit you tax-wise. You're 86, you hate your own required distributions because they're causing you a tax problem probably. And then you've got, you know, a sister with additional uh, tax money that's going to hit you. You can either uh, try to take as little as you can out. You know, maybe you die before it's all uh, passed on and then your heirs get to pay the taxes at their rates, but that might be even worse than yours. You know, do you want to just take a one big swing and take a big tax hit while at least the taxes are out of bracket that you may uh, be more comfortable. If you're in the top tax bracket, the top tax bracket is lower right now than it's going to be in two years. So if adding those distributions, whether they're now, whether they're lump sum, whether they're later, whether they're sometime in the future, or even to your heirs, consider the tax bracket at the time that those uh, distributions are going to be taken out before you you know make that final decision. But again, I believe in paying less taxes over the long haul 
But, you know, if you're in a 12% tax bracket, which is going to be the 15% tax bracket in 2026, yeah, it's a bummer that you have these extra tax uh, liabilities. Maybe you want to kick that can down the road as much as you can to take uh, any bigger final distributions uh, down the road rather than, um, you know, compound your already just right at the limit of going from 12 to 22 or, or the 15 to the 25, which is going to be in a couple of years. If you're going to jump a big tax bracket because of this, it might be smart to just do as much damage as you can early on or just pencil it out over the next 10 years. Now, find out from your CPA and find out from your tax uh, uh, person. Now, I do tax planning, but again, these rules are kind of been, they've been keep moving the goalpost on these IRAs and the distributions on, you know, what, what applies to the new ones, what applies to the old ones, what applies to a non-spouse inherited IRA. You've got different rules than if it was a spouse. IRA. Spousal IRA, you can just make it your own and take distribution forever. There's no 10-year rule until you die and your kids get it. So uh, on a non, on a sister, that's a non-spouse IRA, um, inherited IRA, and you've got different rules. So if I knew your total situation, what tax bracket you were in, what other monies were causing you a tax problem, maybe you've got uh, a bunch of uh, mutual funds that keep on giving you a 1099 every year. And in good years, you go into a higher tax bracket and bad years, you go into a lower tax bracket. You know, if, if that's the case, you don't really have a good tax plan. You're just kind of at the whim of whatever the tax bracket ends up being at the end of the year. So maybe a more comprehensive tax plan is needed before I, uh, well, it is needed before I can give you the right answer or the best answer for you. I do know that you will have additional income on this annuity, even though you're taking your own RMDs. You can't count your own RMDs or your own distributions for your sisters. Now, here's here's the thought. If you have charitable intent, or if you love your church or love a charity, or your kids or grandkids go to a school that could use extra help, you can always give those distributions directly to a charity. They never come into your tax return as income. They go direct to the charity, and they do qualify as a distribution to uh, a charity, and it's a tax offset. So you don't get the tax write-off. You just don't have to include it as income. So you don't have to include it as income, use up your, or have a buried in your standard deduction and not be able to write off a charitable contribution. This way, you can actually write off the charitable contribution by not having it included in your income in the first place. And if that's the case, and you don't itemize your deductions, depending on you know what your situation is, uh, if you're married or single, your tax bracket and your deductions are going to be the same, or are going to be different. But given that, that might be another uh, way to look at it by doing some sort of a you know, a tax plan. You could even convert that entire IRA into a donor uh, advice fund, depending on how big the IRA is and depending on your income. You could do a donor advice fund where you give a whole bunch of money away, direct a, a deposit straight into a, a charitable account, and then you uh, get to dole it out to the charities you know, for the rest of your life as you see fit. So there's a few ways to skin that cat. I mean, if you don't need the money, you don't want the tax problem, then maybe charitable giving is the best uh, route. If not, let's just figure out what the best uh, tax consequence will be, keeping you in the lowest bracket for the longest period of time. Don, thanks a lot for sending us that question. Of course, we don't have all the details there, so I would encourage you to give uh, Jeff a call. Get in and sit down and get the answers to your question. Jeff's number, 520-780-9059. In the meantime, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Okay, Jeff, next question is Steve listening to us in Oro Valley. Steve says, I've just learned that I'll be losing my $90,000 a year IT job late next month. I'm currently contributing to the company's 401k plan. My wife and I are debt-free except for our house. We're also cash flowing one daughter's wedding in June and cash flowing another daughter through college. So along with a sizable severance package, we're in reasonable shape, all things considered. I wonder, though, if I should stop contributing to my 401k and start stockpiling cash until another employment opportunity comes along. Your opinion. Okay, so let's just say you're mid-50s, 55. Now, there's a couple of things that 
are applicable if you're 55. If you quit or lose your job and you have a 401k, you can actually take money out of that and live on if you need to without paying a tax penalty. You do have to pay tax on those on that as income, however. Now, when you said you're going to continue contributing to the 401k and stockpile cash without a job next month, you can't contribute to the 401k. So that that's kind of out. I would say, yeah, do your next month uh, contribution for your 2000 bucks or whatever you're putting away. I put it away in, in the 401k and let them match you and know that you can get it out without a penalty. The other thing you can do is you can borrow from a 401k without a tax uh, ramification. That might be okay, but if you're losing your job this early in the year, I'm thinking you're not going to have a really big tax year. So it might be fine to use your 401k money to live on if uh, that is your bridge, if you don't have that you know extra cash sitting around in the bank or in a brokerage account outside of that. You know, I don't know what the total amount is in that account. I do know that uh, you've got a lot of expenses coming up if you're putting kids through college and marrying off kids. So those things are not cheap. 90000 a year, if that's your only income, you know, you, you're debt free. That's good. But uh, I don't know what you can live on. And I don't know when, how much you have in savings or, you know, how much is even in your 401k plan. So there's not really a relevant scenario here that I can speak to. But again, you might want to consider using that 401k money until you get a new job. And by the way, welcome to the club. There is a lot of people that have been coming into my office recently that have lost IT or computer or high tech jobs. Yet we're right. seeing the, the NASDAQ and the tech market go berserk. Yet Facebook's laying off tens of thousands of people. You know all kinds of these tech companies, banks, uh, UPS, uh, Spotify did, Citicorp just recently have announced uh, layoffs of tens of thousands of people. So you're in a big club of people that are losing their jobs and losing high-paying jobs. Yet the government keeps on telling us how awesome they are by creating 300,000 new jobs in a month, all of which pay about minimum wage in their government jobs. If you want to go work for the government and you know shovel dirt on a road or do something, I don't know what whatever those jobs pay. But ninety thousand dollars a year is one of those jobs where, you know, it's going to be hard to find. It might take you a few months to get back on there. You know, honestly, it just is uh, proves what I've been saying. I'm not trying to make lighter, use your unfortunate example, Steve, as a, you know, a way to uh, bash the current administration. But honestly, Bidenomics does not work. If there's all these jobs created, inflation is still going up and unemployment is down below historic levels. And if we're really making some sort of a, a manufacturing renaissance and the economy is growing, it isn't. You're losing your job. I mean, you're smart enough to call this radio show. I'm sorry you're smart enough to have a good job. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. tongue in cheek here, but you're in the IT business. I mean, you're qualified for a ton of jobs and you may have a, a, a big problem getting. I have, a, you know, several clients that are having trouble that have been making six figures, maybe multiple six figure incomes, can't even come close to a six figure job anymore. And they've been looking, some of them, a year and a half to two years. It doesn't seem like it's really getting better. So I don't know where these new jobs are going. I don't know where this economy that Bidenomics says they're fixing and turned around America and America's already great again. So it doesn't need to be uh, made any greater because, uh, you know, Bidenomics is working. It isn't working. And you're proof of that. I wish I knew more of the numbers. I can maybe give you a little plan. If you want to come in and talk about a plan to, to make that money last as long as you can without, you know, risking it in the stock market or risking as much as you can afford to lose. If you're in your 40s, you've got a longer time horizon and you don't have access to your 401k. If you're older, you know, maybe you can move to a, a self-directed IRA and use it. Uh, if you're over 59 and a half, you can use it there. So there's a lot of different options that I don't have from this question that you might want to look at. And I'm happy to explore them with you if you'd like to come in. And it sounds like Steve does have some cash there. If he's cash flowing his daughter's wedding, we know that that's not inexpensive. You've got a couple of daughters and he's also cash flowing another through college. So, uh, Steve, we would suggest that you give Jeff a call, 520-780-9059, and get your questions answered. We'll also send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Okay, Jeff, final question this week. Cheryl from Rancho Vistoso. Cheryl says, I just found your show about a month ago and I start every Saturday morning with it. Thank you so much, Cheryl. 
I want to start investing in stocks on my own, and I've heard you talk about small cap, mid cap, and large cap stocks, and I was wondering what they are and when you would use one over the other. Well, they're kind of like what they say. Small cap is like the, you know, little billion dollar companies, which sounds big to you and me, but they're still, you know, publicly listed company. Mid caps are, you know, bigger, like the tens of million, tens of billions or even hundred billion. And then the large caps are like the apples, the metas, the, you know, the, the companies that, that can approach a trillion dollars in market value. The companies you've heard of Johnson and Johnson, Merck, Eli Lilly, Pfizer, Coca-Cola. Those are all big cap kind of, and a lot of people say, oh, well, the blue chips, they also call them blue chips, large cap stocks, blue chips, they're big. These are companies that would have a really hard time going bankrupt or going out of business. So a lot of times people like those kind of stocks because they seem a little bit more solid. The mid caps are still kind of growing to into, they're kind of like teenagers, like they're just growing into that big cap phase where, you know, maybe there's a little bit more risk, but they have a little bit more upside because, you know, a little bit more nimble. They don't have a lot of uh, overhead. Maybe they don't have uh, offices on every corner or stores on every corner. They've got to keep overhead and, you know, zillions of employees yet, but they're trying to grow uh, from a small cap, which is more of a startup. Hey, we finally got big enough to go public. We're big enough. You know, a billion dollar company can go out of business just with a bad year or two and just a bad business decision. Economic situations can can cause it problems. But the small and the mid cap business is really uh the heartbeat of America, it really is. And if you look at the Russell 2000 or even the Wilshire 5000, those are indexes that have a more broad base of all the different size stocks in them. If you look in the Russell 2000, is kind of given credit for adding a lot more of the small and mid caps in it. That's why the S&P 500 is, is typically large caps and they're big. I mean, they're big, solid companies. They're blue chip companies. So the S&P 500 is 500 really big stocks and they include things like Facebook and Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft, Apple, all those companies are companies that basically supply some sort of a good or service that the world just cannot do without. And uh, because they're such huge companies, they get a lot of buying power. And really with just seven or eight of those stocks, you can actually drive the entire index of 500 stocks. You can actually make the index look like it's doing a lot better than it really is. For example, last year, the big cap stocks, the large cap stocks make up the S&P 500. Seven of those stocks contributed to almost 100% of the earnings. The other 493 stocks were just a little bit better than break even. Of those stocks, two thirds of them, you know, might've gone up a little bit, but a third or almost a half of those other 493 stocks actually went down. There's not a lot of market breadth, meaning that the, the, the entire market isn't that good. Well, is it just the small companies that are going down? No, these are large cap stocks. They can go down too, but uh, large cap stocks are, are huge. Sometimes the, the banks, the big market makers love those because they're the ones that make the news. If you want to just buy all the small and mid cap stocks with a little bit of big cap in there, you would do like the IWM. It's a lot more, a lot more mid. Now there's also one called IWC. It's iShares, but that's a basically a, an ETF that you can look at. IWC are the ticker symbols. And that is basically all the micro or small cap stocks. These are ones even under a billion dollars. And that might also give you an indication of where the market might go. Now, interestingly, the large cap stocks have on average a PE ratio, price earnings ratio, somewhere between 25 and 30 bucks. People are willing to pay 25 or $30 for $1 of earnings on those companies. On the micro caps right now, the index is about 10, which means the micro cap and the mid cap might be considered undervalued because they've kind of been forgotten in this, all this hoopla and the AI craze and the overbuying the Amazons and Apples and Netflix and Facebooks and Microsoft. So 
there is a time when the small and mid cap stocks are going to start, you know, coming back up. But if you look at the last two years, they've consistently still been trending down. Every time they try to make a new high, the high goes down and reverses. Now, just at the end of the year, the higher high after about five of these different downtrending cycles, it finally broke out. In other words, it finally looked like the mid caps and the small caps, and this might've been what you heard me talking about in the recent past, is just started to kind of break out and go above what we thought was their support or their resistance level. It looked like the small and mid caps were finally gonna make a rebound and the big cap, the large cap stocks were finally gonna run out of gas because they've been really overbought and people have been paying so much more for them that um, just made a lot more sense to buy these smaller and mid cap stocks. And honestly, I think if I were to invest for the long haul right now, if I were to be jumping into the stock market, and I'm not, I'm still kind of waiting for a better opportunity. I think even the micro caps and the small caps, the Russell 2000s are still going to get hit if the stock market has a, a major or even a you know a moderate sell-off. Now the Russell 2000, which again includes some of the bigger stocks and bigger names, um, not micro cap, has been kind of running even for the last couple of years. You know, it crashed a little bit, it bounced back for a minute, then it crash. It's, it's that again, about five different market cycles. And those cycles are about even. It's actually in the last two years, the Russell 2000 is still down lower than what it was. The big indexes of the big large cap stocks have actually grown to higher levels. So again, you know, the price earnings ratio of the Russell 2000 is, is 12. That's a lot more reasonable number. So if you're looking for value, and again, I'm going back to fundamentals. Fundamentals means what are, what is somebody in, with a sound mind willing to pay for earnings of a company, not just a name that is hyped on the news? Well, I think the small caps and the mid caps make a lot of sense right now. IWM and IWC are a way to, to buy into those. And I'm not making a recommendation here because I don't know your situation. But if I'm looking at the long haul, I just don't see them getting beat up as bad as I see something that's valued at the 30 price earnings ratio, a, a, an index that is so overbought and overvalued and higher than statistically normal prices that if it corrects and goes down half, I don't see the micro caps and the smaller companies and the mid caps going down as much. And I do see that if there is kind of an outflow from these overpriced bigger stocks, I think smart money that still wants to be in stocks will start going that route. And there will come a time when I'm a little bit more um, hip on them. And honestly, at the first of the year, I dabble. I, I, we started rotating back into them for a minute. And then, uh, you know, the, the market broke down and the interest rates, uh, you know, Powell said, hey, just joking. We're not really going to lower interest rates. Ha ha. Joke's on you. And by the way, the banks aren't going to really do it seven times and inflation isn't really in check. And you might see that on the next CPI numbers. But I'm not going to tell you that yet. We'll wait till the third week of February to let you know. I think uh, that's a good question about what the difference is. Small cap and mid cap, I think, are fair are undervalued right now, considering their long-term history and valuations over time. There's a big divergence between the growth in the big caps and the growth in the small and mid caps. So I hope that answered your question. If it's just kind of a, if you're talking about where should I invest? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little scared to invest in those large caps that are overvalued, especially those ones that have been overly hyped. Those Magnificent Seven, I think, are going to be the ones that hit the wall first if they do. You know, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if they will or won't, but um, I do know that I'm scared to uh, overpay for, you know, a lot of things. I like to buy things that are fairly valued. I like deals, and I don't think there's a lot of deals in the big caps. I think the, the, the deals are better in the small amounts. Cheryl, thanks a lot for that question. Of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. If you've got a question for us you'd like us to answer on the air, get it to us by going to premret.com. There's a contact form there and sending it to us from there. You can also give Shelly a call if you'd like, 520-780-9059 if you want to dictate the question to her. Nevertheless, however you send it, if we do use it on the air, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. And in the meantime, listening to the program today, if you'd like to sit down with Jeff, talk about your individual 
individual journey towards a prosperous retirement, a confident retirement that could last as long as 30 years? You've got questions. Jeff has the answers for you. No cost, no obligation for this retirement review. To get yours, call 520-780-9059. 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation for this. Just a friendly conversation to put you on the right path and get your questions answered. Again, 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, not a lot of time left in the program today, but, you know, people listening to the program are probably here because they want to grow their wealth or they want to retire. Let's talk about somebody who wants to retire in 2025. That could be a year, could be a year and a half, almost two years from now. What should somebody be looking at right off the bat to determine whether or not it's feasible for them to retire in one year? Yeah, I'll just tell you about somebody that came in last night, uh, my last appointment of the week before uh, the show here, and uh, uh, wanted to retire in a year. Very similar situation. Had about a million in assets, a pretty good job, making about 120 a year. Thought they wanted to go part-time, but you know, the part-time income just doesn't cut it. And she said to me, she says, I just don't want to do this anymore. What do we do? You know, being a single woman, she's in a, in a pretty high tax bracket. She's been in the 22 or the 22-ish bracket you know, not quite the 24, but what's going to be the 25% tax bracket coming up soon. She doesn't want to go into the 28% tax bracket, which, uh, you know, for a single woman is going to start somewhere around $100,000 taxable. So she wants to be below that. We can keep her below that. So what we did is we structured her IRAs. We're going to do some Roth conversions during the year now that she's working part-time and has lower income to add to her already Roth so she can get uh, tax-free income. What it comes down to is She's going to be able to live on a total income of about $100,000 a year. Her taxes are going to be about 10 to 12. But the cool thing is, is we're converting some to LERPs and Roths. She's still healthy enough to get LERP life insurance retirement plans and Roths and create tax-free income of about 30000 a year. You know, if she's living on 100 minus her deduction, plus 30000 a year in tax-free income, she's only paying taxes on not quite $60,000 a year, which is, you know, I think pretty strong. So, you know, if you can live on $60,000 taxable, yet live on 100 only pay 10000 in taxes, we're living on eighty-five dollars or $90,000 a year, which is similar to what she was living on when she was making 120000 Then she kind of scaled back and was making 90000 last year. Now she wants to just cruise this year and make about half that. But how do we do it? We just reposition those assets to create guaranteed or predictable income. We create enough tax-free income and enough um, taxable income that we know is going to have to be coming out of her 401k because it's going to be taxable anyway. But instead of waiting till she's 73 and taking required minimum distributions at a small amount and having it go up every year and have her eventually be in a high tax bracket, we're actually front-end loading those withdrawals to keep her in a a pretty similar straight line, basically a a straight-line tax situation where we know what her taxable income is going to be for the rest of her life. Tax-free income, taxable income. We have guaranteed income sources that add up to about 95000 a year. And she's still got about uh, $250,000 in liquid money she can play around with. Uh, she can invest in uh, either bonds, invest in the market if she has a risk tolerance for that, or uh, just uh, you know buy some CDs and keep it as a rainy day money uh, should she need it. So she's going to have more money spendable than she actually was spending after she was putting money away in her 401k and paying taxes, social security, and all those other things when she was working. So you know she had done well. She lived within her means. She'd saved a, a reasonable amount of money. And when it came in, it, we found out that she could, in fact, retire four years earlier than she had originally planned. So whether you're planning on retiring this year, next year, or maybe a few years in the future, get in and sit down with Jeff and talk about your retirement journey. Of course, Jeff will have the answers for you to uh, help make sure that your retirement journey is what you'd like it to be. And keep in mind that, you know, your retirement could last 30 plus years or more. You need to plan for that. So for your no cost, no obligation, and no judgment retirement review, once again, 520 780 
59. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time, but most of all, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered. 